Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. What I want to talk today to you about uh, is the um, correlation, actually, between federal income tax, uh, which is my field, uh, and the laws of tithing. Um, so my background, when I uh, began teaching, uh, you, you put together the class, and the federal income tax class is all about income definition. What's included in income, what's deductible from income, uh, et cetera. And I had this thought. And the thought was, well, wait a minute. People have been tithing for thousands of years. Uh, 10% of what? There's got to be an income definition somewhere in, in the religious traditions that, that include tithing. Uh, and uh, so I started looking around, and I thought, well, if I know Jews, and I know Jews, uh, it's got to be defined somewhere in the halakha, right? The, the rules have to be out there. Uh, so when I moved to Phoenix, I found a local rabbi uh, at the Kalel, and I called him up and said, look, I would love to come in and study the laws of tithing. Uh, and he said, come on in. So for several years, I met with him once or twice a week um, to try to figure out what the rules were. And in particular, because I, I was interested not in them for a, you know, sort of the religious perspective, but, but also for the the sort of how do these rules compare to the federal tax rules that have been developed in a secular society. Um, so what I'd like to do today is sort of talk to you about, uh, about some of the things that I found, uh, some of the parallels, some of the differences. Um, so uh, when I give this talk to a, a non-Jewish audience, uh, I, I spend a, a minute or two uh, talking about the structure of Jewish law uh, because it's alien to, to many. Um, so let, let me just, I, I don't know that that's necessary with this audience, um, but, but let me just take a, a very brief moment to, to sort of lay it out there. Um, so uh, in a nutshell, uh, Moses goes up the mountain, he talks to God, he comes back, he brings the Ten Commandments, but he also brings with him uh, the knowledge that he writes down in, in the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible. And, uh, but he doesn't write down everything he's been told, right? He keeps back some. And this is the oral tradition uh, that, that helps us understand what the commandments in the Torah are all about. Uh, and initially, it is determined that, that such oral tradition has to remain oral. But with the diaspora and the, the sort of scattering of the Jewish community throughout the world, uh, the communities start to write it down. And we, we end up first with, with the Mishnah. Um, which, which contains some of the wisdom, and then over time it gets compiled together in the, in the Talmud. Um, and so the Talmud acts as a sort of um, operating manual, if you will, uh, for the rules that are contained in the Torah. And I'm oversimplifying, and I'm sure many of you out there are saying, well, that's not quite right, and I get it, and I agree. Um, but, but bear with me. Um, Numbers of questions come up uh, over time, and the Talmud is compiled in around the 6th century. Uh, and uh, the rabbis then start, you know, sort of responding to questions that are being posed to them by, uh, by the, you know, the congregants. And so what develops is what we refer to as a responsa literature, um, where questions are asked and rabbis are saying, well, in this case, here's how you deal with it. And then these responsa, uh, the responsa literature gets compiled into books. Um, and, and so that's another source of sort of legal authority uh, on questions like this. Uh, and then finally, there are commentaries on the Torah, on the Mishnah, on the 
Talmud. Uh, and these commentaries are another source of legal authority. So when we talk about the sort of the rules, um, they come from a variety of different sources. Uh, and they come from a variety of different times. So some of the writing is 2,000 years old. Some of it dates back all the way to the 1970s as new scenarios arise uh, and the rabbis are called on to figure out how to apply these ancient rules to, to something new in the world. So that's the, the sort of the background the, of, of you know, sort of the legal structure we're dealing with. Um, so I want to start with the agricultural tithe. Uh, because I think the agricultural tithe is absolutely fascinating. Um, so Deuteronomy says, uh, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Right? Seems really straightforward, fairly simple. 10% of whatever it is you grow. Um, but it turns out that anybody who's, who's spent any time with the law uh, knows that even something that simple can be extraordinarily complicated. And so, so the rabbis had to break down that very question, or, or that statement, into its component parts, and then delve into the sort of outer boundaries of each of the terms. So the first question, right, it's 10% of the produce of the fields. Well, what's a field, right? So it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward when you look out and you see a field of corn growing somewhere, that's a field. But what do you do with a courtyard, right? It's on the front of a house, and it's got a low wall around it, and there's a tree that produces fruit, right? Is that courtyard a field or not? Because if it's a field, you've got to tithe from the produce. Uh, and the rabbis, you know, 2,000 years ago were sort of arguing over that. Uh, I think my favorite field argument was, uh, what if you put onions up in the attic and the onions start to sprout, right? now? Is that a field? And the rabbi said, well, if, if the roof is open to the sky, then it's a field. But if the roof is enclosed, then it's really more of a, of a storage shed. And so you don't have to tithe again from those onions because they weren't the produce of a field. So a lot of arguments um, among the early rabbis, or at least discussion, over what constituted a field. Um, which, which then they said, OK, so we got that settled, or at least settled enough. So what's produce, right? If you grow apples, apples are produce. But what do you do with hemp? It grows, but you don't eat hemp. And so the rabbi said, well, when we talk about produce of the fields, we're really talking about food. So you don't have to tithe from your hemp. Uh, and, and that kind of makes sense, because if you ask, well, what are they doing with this tithe? Right? They're giving it to the Levite to support the Levite uh, in Israel. Um, and, and because they are excluded from sort of from, from land ownership. And so you end up saying, right, you make, it makes sense that it be only food because that's what these, the, the recipients uh, actually need. And then you learn that, well, there are actually two tithes. One goes to the Levites. The other one uh, is, is supposed to be either given to the poor or taken to Jerusalem to be eaten, depending on what year of the seven-year cycle it is. Uh, and you realize again that, yeah, hemp doesn't work. You don't bring it to Jerusalem and eat it. And so therefore, you can construct from the, the circumstantial evidence that what we're talking about here is only food. Um, so then they say, all right, so it's 10% of the produce of the fields of Israel. So the rabbis then turn to the question of, well, what's Israel? Uh, and you say, well, that's pretty straightforward, right? We've all seen the map. They say, well, no, it's not so straightforward because, you see, Israel was conquered in various waves. It eventually broke into two different kingdoms. Uh, and, and we're not really sure what Israel is. And so you have different rabbis with different rules for different parts of what we might consider today to be Israel. Um, you know, when the borders shift, that's going to create some issues. I think my favorite discussion, absolute favorite discussion on the agricultural tithe is the rabbis who ask the following question. What do you do with a tree that grows in Jordan but sends a branch into Israeli airspace? Do you need to tithe on that? And the rabbis said, no, right? It's, 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 a, it's a Jordanian tree. So, so what matters is where the roots are. 
So the next rabbi comes along and says, well, what do you do with a tree that grows directly on the border with Jordan, such that half of its roots are in Jordan and half of its roots are in Israel? And the rabbi said, well, you got to tithe half the tree because half of it's in Israel. Um, and, and so, so this, is, this is by way of sort of suggesting that even the most simple-sounding phrase can lead to serious complexity. Uh, and, and in fact, in one of my articles that I wrote about this, right, I actually used the agricultural tithing example uh, to sort of demonstrate, right, we talk about we need to simplify the tax code. Um, but the reality is that uh, even a simple phrase is going to be extraordinarily complicated, and it's very easy to get deep into the weeds very, very quickly. Um, so, so that's that's the sort of first part of the of the tithing, and and you know that I that I wanted to explore with you all. Um, but when I actually had the idea initially, I wasn't thinking about agricultural tithing. Um, I was actually thinking of non-agricultural tithing, um, where, where people are giving 10% of their income, because I was teaching income tax, and I was trying to figure out what, uh, what an income tax looked like. Um, so this is referred to generally as maser kesafim, a tenth of silver. Uh, and, and so let's, let's spend a minute you know, sort of figuring out what, what the origins of this practice are. Uh, before we get into the, the income definition rules. Um, so uh, the first sort of mention of tithing that we're going to find uh, in the Torah is when Abraham um, conquers uh, an enemy, and the, it reads, it says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram the God, uh-oh, most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, uh, the Most High, who hath delivered these enemies into thy hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. So this is in Genesis uh, 14, uh, verse 19 and 20. So that's the first mention of, of tithing. There are no rules attached to it. It's essentially Abraham conquered somebody and decided to give a tenth to the high priest. Um, the next mention that we find is Jacob on the Temple Mount. Uh, he has a dream. He sees the angels going up and down. Uh, and uh, he says, in this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, because Jacob makes a, a, essentially an altar, uh, shall be God's house. Uh, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give thee a tenth. Uh, and, and so basically Jacob is saying, hey, whatever I receive, I'm going to give you a tenth of it, God. Right? And so this is generally seen to be the origins of of uh, the tithing obligation. But it's a little more complicated than that um, because there's this, this sort of practice among the patriarchs of tithing, uh, but it actually ties into something else. Uh, there is, uh, in the Torah, the obligation of tzedakah, the obligation to um, do charity. And the rabbi said, well, that's great. And, and so what is it? Well, if you see somebody who's poor, you must help them to the extent you can to bring them back to the position or station they were in. Uh, but how do you know if you've done enough? What if you don't run into anybody who's poor? How do you satisfy the tzedakah obligation if, if you live a life in a, in a gated community and never find somebody who actually needs your help? And so what the rabbis did was they basically said, wait, we can tie this back to Abraham and to Jacob and say, you know what? They said you should give a tenth. Well, that's what the tzedakah obligation is. And so the tradition developed of segregating out a tenth of one's income to be used to help the poor. And so, so the tzedakah obligation got married, essentially, to, the, um, to, to Jacob's vow. Um, and what's interesting is that tithing has a special, special place within, uh, within Jewish law. Um, it, it would be impertinent to do a mitzvah, to fulfill a commandment, and then turn to God and say, all right, so what are you going to do for me back, right? It doesn't work like that. The rule is, God says jump, you jump. You don't expect anything back. The one exception happens to be tithing. So if you look at Malachi 3.10, 
It says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Right? So what this is is essentially a promise by God. If you tithe, you will be rewarded. Um, in fact, not you will be rewarded. I will reward you for tithing. Right? So it is essentially a divine incentive to tithe. Um, and it's quite different, I think, than most of the sort of obligations we find uh, in the Torah. And in fact, this is the basis. These phrases like this are the basis of prosperity gospel. So you see the televangelists on TV out there saying, hey, you know, give to me and you will be rewarded for giving. It's based on, on, on this sort of promise that tithing will be rewarded with riches. Um, so, so that's the origin of tithing. There, there are a couple of other interesting points. So for instance, right, how much we've been talking about 10%. Um, but actually, if you look at the rabbis, what they will tell you is, well, it's 10%, but if you're super wealthy, maybe 20% is okay. And you might ask, well, where does that come from, right? Because it looks pretty clearly like it's 10% here. But if you actually look at the Hebrew um, of Jacob's vow, uh, he says, you know, it's translated as, you know, I shall surely tithe to thee. Well, surely is actually a, 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 an English translation of a double verb, right? So it's, I will tithe, I will tithe, is essentially if, if you were to translate it literally. And so a number of rabbis say, well, I will tithe, I will tithe, means I will tithe twice, which gets you to 20%. Um, and then some rabbis said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. So if you tithe first, then the second tithe is only on 90% of what you had. So it's not quite 20% because when you do the math, it, it comes out a little less. Um, but what it, what it leads to actually is, is this almost a progressive tax system. So if you're poor, you get tithes. If you're not quite wealthy, you know, giving a little less than 10% is okay. If you're a normal person, 10% is the obligation. But if you're super wealthy, and can afford to, 20% is a full uh, fulfillment of the, of the obligation. Um, so, so that's the sort of background to this obligation to tithe. But it leads to the question, the one that actually interested me at the very beginning, which is 10% or 20% of what, right? You know, so you've got this income, what's included and what's not. So what I want to do now is I want to sort of walk through a couple of examples and compare the, the Jewish law rules to the federal tax law rules. And, and tell me if you're going to get to this, but one question I think that is interesting to explore if we're, if we're going to is once we assess a certain percentage of taxation goes towards welfare needs, could one say that the taxes they're paying could technically count as the maser? Yeah, we'll, I'll, I, will, okay, I will get there. Okay, I will get there, because the rabbis do talk about that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but if I don't, remind me. Um, so let me start with, with something very simple, gifts and inheritances. Right? So uh, let's start with federal tax law. Code section 102 of the federal income tax says, gifts and inheritances are not included in income. So even though it's an accession to wealth, when you inherit $5 million, you don't have to pay any tax on it. Um, we have an estate tax, which taxes the transfer of that money to you, but you, as a, from income tax purposes, it's not an income event. Um, and, and so you say, all right, so we don't have to uh, pay tax on any gifts we get. Uh, can the giver deduct the tax? And the answer is no. Giver cannot you know, deduct the tax. Um, and you say, well, why do we have this rule? And you say, well, gifts are not included in income for a couple of reasons. One is liquidity, right? So if you inherit not $5 million, but a house, and you have to pay tax on it, well, you don't have any money to pay the tax. You'd have to sell the house to pay the tax on the house. And so liquidity concerns lead the federal, uh, lead Congress to say, you know what? We're not going to include gifts and income because it would, it would be really unfortunate to inherit a family heirloom owe tax on it and have to sell the family heirloom to pay that tax. Um, there's also an income shifting concern, which is 
if I earn money and give it to somebody, uh, if they pay tax on it, I would argue I shouldn't have to pay tax on it too because then there's double taxation. So the appropriate rule would be I earn it, I give it to you, you include it, I include it first, I deduct it when I give it to you, and then you include it. Well, if that's the rule, it turns out that you could shift income to people in lower tax brackets. So another reason why we don't uh, tax gifts and we disallow deductions when you give gifts is because of the fear of income shifting. Um, and so these are all the concerns that, uh, that, that we see. Um, it, it also, by the way, this rule that there's no tax on gifts creates all kinds of incentives to cheat. So let's say I went to my uh, employer, uh, ASU, and I said, look, don't pay me salary anymore because salary is included in income and I got to pay tax on that. Instead, every year, why don't you just give me a gift that happens to equal the amount of my salary? Um, and because we know that gifts are excluded from income because that's the rule. Uh, and so Congress had to come back and say, all right, that's just not going to work. Uh, and so we now have a bright line rule that says there are no such thing as gifts between employers and employees, at least for tax purposes. So any gift I get from my employer is going to be treated just like my salary. Uh, and so I can't, I can't cheat that way. And, and what, what we see there in that rule, in that tax rule, is like, well, it's really hard for the IRS to know whether a gift is truly intended as a gift or whether it's disguised salary. And they said, we have no way of knowing because the taxpayer and the employer are going to come in and they're going to testify, of course this was disinterested generosity and it shouldn't be taxed. And the IRS has no way of figuring that out. So Congress said, we're going to have a bright line rule. And the bright line rule is, we don't care whether you intended it as a gift. Intent is out the window. We're not using that as a metric for our rule. Instead, we're having a bright line rule that says any transfer between employer and employee cannot be excluded as a gift because that's the only way we can administer the tax code without getting into endless fights. So, so I want to take that rule and I want to compare it to the halakha, to the Jewish law on gifts. So not surprisingly, rabbis faced the same questions. People would come to their rabbis and say, hey, I got this gift. Do I have to separate out 10% uh, for, for tithing purposes? And what the rabbi said was, well, of course you have to include gifts, right? You received something, and the gift is going to be includable in income, right? And uh, they said there's, there's no, like, double taxation or double tithing, right? The person who got it in the first place had to tithe from it because... The obligation is a personal obligation. It doesn't attach to the thing, right? It's not like the car gets tithed once and then it's done. It's like if the car comes to you, you tithe on it. If you give the car to somebody else, they tithe on it because it's an obligation that's personal to you about what you received. Um, so they got rid of that. Um, but, but the rabbis were, not, were actually quite sophisticated and said, well, but there are liquidity concerns, right? If you get a car and you have to tithe on it, um, do we, are we going to force you to sell the car so that you can tithe? That, that doesn't seem fair. Just yeah. Also, when you're dealing with primarily with the employer-employee relationship, right. as opposed to your brother says, I see you're hurting, I'm going to give you a gift as a brother. Right. 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 And, and so, uh, so they're, they, they sort of started worrying about this. And, and what I love is their liquidity solution. They said, well, here's the deal. If you were going to buy a car for yourself, he said, I'm buying a car. So you'd saved up the money to buy a car. And then grandma comes in and says, you need a car? Here's a car. The rabbi said, you know what? You got to tithe on that. The reason is that you were intending to buy a car. So we can presume that you had the money to buy a car. And so you don't have a liquidity problem. On the other hand, if the car sort of drops into your lap and you weren't planning to buy it, you don't have a store of money saved up and so therefore you do have a liquidity problem, and so therefore you don't have to uh, actually tithe on the car. And so, so the rabbis sort of said, Let, let's try to you know, figure this out and, and ascertain whether you truly have a liquidity problem or, or not. And then, then what I loved is that you know, the next rabbi comes along and says, well, what if you were gonna buy you know, a, a crappy, cheap car, but grandma gave you an expensive car? 
So you've got the money saved up for a $10,000 car, but dropped into your lap was a $50,000 car. What do you do? Well, you've got some money saved up, so they said you have to tithe on the value of the car you were intending to buy. So, so let's, let's pause for a minute and compare that to the federal tax law. Right? What the rabbis have done is they've said, look, the answer depends on your intent. It depends on what you were going to do. And if you were going to buy a car, you tithe. If you were not going to buy a car, you, you don't have to tithe. So if we tried to take that rule and transfer it back into the tax code that we all know and love, right? it wouldn't work. Why? Because everybody would testify, I wasn't going to buy a car. And there's no way for the, for the IRS to figure out what your actual intent was. And the thing with tithing is that while there's no formal audit, uh, there kind of is a formal audit, and it's God, and God is omniscient. He knows your intent. You can't cheat. And so what the rabbis were able to craft um, were far more precise laws based on intent uh, that are simply not administrable in a secular system. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Um, and so this is one of the key differences between the two kinds of sort of tax systems. In the federal income tax, they say, is it administrable? Can we get to the truth? How do we figure out what the right answer is? And they say, well, we're constrained. We're human. We can't read minds. Um, whereas in the religious context, they said, oh, no, this is, this is quite simple. Um, you know, we look at your intent, and that tells you whether you should tithe or not. Now, that doesn't mean people don't cheat. People can cheat all the time. They can say, I was not intending to buy a car and just not tithe on it. Um, and while they might fool us, they're not going to fool God. Uh, and so if they lie about their intent, what they're doing is they're essentially violating the obligations that have been imposed on them. And presumably there will be some comeuppance, uh, you know, one way or another, uh, whether, you know, sort of reflection later in life or, or something else. Um, so, so this is one of the sort of key ways in which, uh, in which the two sets of rules differ. Um, so that's gifts and inheritances. Um, and, and what you'll find is a lot of questions that, you know, I was talking about a car, but when you look at, at the, you know, the rabbinical writings on it, a lot of it's land, right? If you, if you get, if you inherit some land, what do you do with that? Do you have to tithe, right? Do you have to sell part of the land in order to, to tithe? And they said, no, you don't. But when you sell the land, you know, take 10% of the proceeds. And, and so it's essentially, they're not saying you never have to tithe. It's a deferral system. We're going to defer it until you're not illiquid. What's the inheritance tax in America? In, the, in America, it's about, right now, it's about 45%. Whoa! But, but, <laughs> but, there's an exemption. And the exemption is, at present, right now, as we sit here, you, you don't owe any until you have $24 million uh, of, of wealth. Oh. So, so I always tell my tax class, I say to them, my prayer, my, my highest hope and dream is to pay some estate tax. Because that means I got $25 million, yeah, right. right? Anything below that, what's the rate then? Uh, zero. Zero. Yep. Yep. Oh. And it, I mean, it's a little more complicated. It's, it's $12 million per person, but if you're married, you get to join them together. Collective or one time? I mean, yeah. do they like, build, do they keep tabs of, you know, you're, you're in the long line of a, of a wealthy family and over the No, it's, it's, it's per person, right? So, but, but is that like a lifetime? Right. You know, like if, I'm a, if I'm a descendant of a strew of, you know, wealthy family members and they one by one as they all pass and collectively over 10 years, I hit that 24 million, then do I have to start paying it or is it? No, the way, the, the way it works is that you, you say, okay, somebody has passed away. Mm -hmm. how, my, how much do they have in assets? Mm -hmm. Right now, if the answer is under 24 million, it goes to whomever they left it to completely mm -hmm. tax-free. Mm -hmm. When that person dies... You say, well, how much do they have? Is it under $24 million? If the answer is yes, it goes to the next person tax-free. Okay, okay. it's, it's, it's per decedent, essentially. Gotcha. Um, 
So, so I, I hope to pay a state tax someday. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to get there. Um, work, working for a, a university is not the, the surest path to riches. Let me just suggest that. Um, so uh, um, at any rate, uh, so, but, but what they said was, going back to this land question, they said, look, when you inherit land, you know, that's, that's an accession to wealth. And so you ought to, theoretically, tithe on it. But land is illiquid, so we're going to say no tithing today, but when you sell the land and your liquidity problem goes away, because when you sell it, you've got cash in hand, well, then you separate out the 10%, and then you, then you give it away. Um, well, you're assuming that you're going to sell the land at one point. What if that oh, land stays within the family, so then it just... I mean, they just keep right. If if you never sell it, then 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 you're never going to tithe because you've got a liquidity problem. And then people will do things, right? So um, there's in, in federal tax law, there's a code section 1031 where you exchange real estate. You say, okay, I'm going to trade my my piece of real estate for your piece of real estate. So you never cash out. And so there's an interesting question of what if you you know create your life say, well, I'm I'm trading this for another illiquid asset. And you say, well, should I tithe now? And say, well, you never got cash, but you intentionally avoided getting cash. And so there's a, a constructive receipt doctrine, at least in federal tax law, that says, look, if, if you avoided getting cash, we're going to pretend that you got the cash and then acquired the next piece of land. And so we're going to avoid it. So um, there, there are some very interesting sort of questions. And, and as people try to manipulate the rules, it's, it's really... It's really interesting. Well, it's interesting because there's, I mean, you're using examples of, of potential assets that some are income producing while some depreciate. So, right. you know, there's, a, you know, as you said before, you know, you can try and fool the government, but you can't fool God. So it's mm-hmm. a case by case for sure. Right, right. So let's go on to the next one. The next one uh, is lost objects. Let's pretend you lose something. Um, in, up until this year, because they've changed the federal tax laws, um, you know, if you lost something, you got to deduct it. You got a casualty loss deduction. Um, and, and so, you know, let's say, or in business, you lose something. Well, you get a business deduction because it's lost. Now, what happens if you find it again, right? And in federal tax law, the rule is, well, if you lose it and find it without deducting the loss, you're just getting back what's yours. It's like making a loan and getting paid back. When, when somebody pays back a loan, you don't include the proceeds in income because you're just getting back what you lent out. In contrast, if, you have, if you've deducted the loss, when it comes back to you, it's like new, and so that really is income because the deduction was inappropriate, and so you could either go back in time and undo the deduction or you just include it currently. And so the rule is, especially because there's a statute of limitations, you know, you just you include it currently. What about something, what if you lose something intangible? Like say, you, theoretically, you, you lose your reputation or something, and then that, that causes you to not be able to have a business. Right, so, so the, those rules are really interesting. I, on, on some of those, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what the question is, but, but it sounds like it's a damages question. Right, so somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, you're a lying, cheating, son of a whatever, and now nobody will do business with you anymore. And you sue them, and you recover because you've lost your business. And so one of the questions for tax purposes is, is that money taxable? And early on, the answer was no, because you're just being made whole. They took your, your reputation away, and they're compensating you uh, and so you're just getting your reputation back in the form of cash. Um, but over time, uh, tax authorities got more sophisticated about it, and they said, wait a minute, you're just selling your reputation in a forced sale. So if I say, look, if you come to me and say, hey, I'll give you $100,000 if I can go out and say really mean, nasty things to you. And I say, fine, go ahead, ruin my reputation for $100,000, I'm happy to have you do it. Clearly, I have to pay tax on the 100. You've bought my reputation from me. Um, so if instead you slander me first, and then I say, well, give me $100,000, and the court makes you do it, it's just a sale of my reputation, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. And so under today's rules, you would have to pay tax uh, on any, any recovery. So say someone paid 
someone else $130,000 to keep something private, is that $130,000 uh, taxable? Uh, yeah, it would be. It, it absolutely would be. I wonder how you picked that number. Hmm. <laughs> um, so, so going back to lost objects. So the lost objects in federal tax, the treatment depends on whether you've deducted it or not. Because that, if you've deducted it, it makes the, the return of it like a, a new item. Um, the rabbis considered the exact same question. And what the rabbi said is, well, we don't, we don't really deduct lost objects, right? That's not a thing in, in, uh, in the laws of tithing. Um, but whether you have to tithe on, on getting the thing back actually depends on whether you gave up hope, right? So if, if you lost it and said, damn, it's in the house somewhere, or I, I know it's somewhere out there and I'm going to find it one day, well, then you're just getting back something that's yours. But if you said, I've lost it, I have no idea where it is, it's gone forever, and then two years later you find it again, they say, okay, well, now that's new to you because you gave up hope um, of ever recovering it You've, you've changed the nature of the item into a, a new acquisition, and as such, you have to tithe on it. Um, and again, sort of stepping back for a minute, imagine if that were the rule in federal tax purposes. Everything you ever gave up or lost, you'd say, I never gave up hope. I always thought maybe one day I would find it, and then you wouldn't have to pay tax on it. Um, whereas for tithing purposes, God knows whether you gave up hope, right? And, and so... So you can have a rule that's based on some internal belief that is completely non-verifiable, um, which is, again, one of the important and, and fascinating differences uh, between, um, uh, between federal law and Jewish law. So uh, another interesting issue is inflation. So let's talk about inflation for a second. So you buy a house for $100,000, um, and uh, there's 50% inflation. So the house is now worth 150. So you sell it for 150. Do you have to pay federal income tax on that nominal $50,000 gain? Do you have to tithe on the nominal $50,000 gain? So the tax authorities, federal tax authorities said, look, we're gonna ignore inflation. It's all nominal. And so even though you are you've earned not a penny because inflation has eaten up that $50,000 gain, um, you still have to pay tax on the nominal gain of $50,000. Um, and there have been long debates throughout the 100 years of the tax code about whether we should be indexing the basis of your house for inflation so that when you sell it, you should use 150 as the, as the baseline for measuring gain or loss. But it's really complicated um, because you have inflation and then it compounds and, and so so for tax purposes, the federal government has said, we're ignoring inflation entirely. The rabbis, on the other hand, have a lot more flexibility. And they said, wait a minute. If you haven't actually gained anything, why should you be tithing on it? So if you bought it for 100 it went up in value to 150 because of inflation, then $150,000 today buys the exact same amount that $100,000 would have bought when you bought the house in the first place. So while you have nominal gain, you have no real economic gain, you don't have to tithe on that. Um, which opens the door to cheating because how do you know how much of the gain is due to inflation? How do you know how much of the gain is due to the fact that they've now built uh, you know, light rail next to your property? Uh, it's almost impossible to figure out. Um, but again, it's not a system, the, the, the Jewish tithing system is not a system that is subject to audit uh, by human beings. Um, we don't have to enforce it. We don't have to administer it. Um, and so we're entitled to sort of develop rules that just would be unworkable in, in, a, in the secular world. Um, and, and actually, to say that it's, it, it was unenforceable. Actually, right, if you, if you look at the literature, there were, you know, sort of tzedakah collectors who would go around in these Jewish communities and go from house to house to house saying, hey, it's time to pay up. Um, and so people were sort of required to do charity, which is sort of oxymoronic, but, but that's the way it was. Um, but nobody audited them, right? Nobody said, wait, you only gave me 100 shekels. You should have given me 120 shekels. 
So, so while there was a system in, in sort of medieval Europe of, of forced charity, forced tithing, nonetheless, it wasn't a system where they said, wait a minute, we're going to come in, audit the books, and figure out whether you actually paid enough. Um, so it was more in the, in the form of a, a hearty encouragement than it was uh, a true sort of tax system. Um, Related to inflation, uh, maybe you're going to get to this later, but uh, what about shares of stock? Like say you have one share that goes really high, like you say you buy it for like a dollar at the beginning of the year and end of the year it's worth $100, and you have another stock that was worth 100 at the beginning of the year and now it's worth like a dollar at the end. Uh, right, so, so you're getting at something that we refer to as the um, realization requirement in federal tax. So the rule for federal tax purposes is that if you buy a share of stock for a dollar and at the end of the year it's worth a hundred, you have $99 of gain, but you haven't sold the stock yet. And so our rule is that even though in a theoretical or economic sense you have $99 of income, for tax purposes you have no income until you sell it. Um, and the rabbis don't talk about realization requirements, but, but this is an income tax, not a wealth tax. And so implicit in the income tax is this idea is that you have to turn it into cash. Um, and so for both systems, you would not have to tithe on the increase in the value of your property because you haven't realized the income. Um, so there is an implicit realization requirement. Um, and, and the second part of the question was, well, what if you've got one that went up and one that went down? You know, can you net? And in both systems, you can, right? So the rabbis will say, look, you, you figure out all of your income and all of your losses. You net them together to figure out, are you net ahead or net behind? Um, there are, in, in federal income tax, some rules, some loss limitation rules. Um, I haven't found any in, in, in Jewish law. Um, so, so you are entitled to net, assuming that the thing you're netting is, is truly deductible. And, and we'll get to that well, in a second. Also, like back to the liquidity, liquidity excuse me, element of, you know, like, you're, like you were saying, like it's, you could have the volatility of the market. I mean, you could have losses and gains, you know, in both directions all day long. But if you're, it's just sitting there in your portfolio, then right. There are really two issues. So one is liquidity, right? If my stock goes up to $100 and I've got a $99 gain, I don't have the money to pay the tax on that. I'd have to sell my stock to pay it. So that's the liquidity problem. But then there's the valuation problem. If you have an active market, like a stock market, you know that the stock's sitting at 100 But what about the piece of property you own? You have no idea what it's really worth until somebody pays you for it. And so part of why we have a realization requirement is that we're only really guessing at value and we rely on market transactions to tell us what value is. Uh, and so that's part of why we need you to sell it before we decide how much it's worth, which is how much the 10% ought to be uh, uh, calculated against. I wonder also, Ancillary, too, stock market is, uh, what if you're in Vegas and you win like some huge jackpot? I'm sure that's, that's income. Right. But I wonder how... Um, I don't know if the rabbis disapprove of gambling, but they do. They do. <laughs> but I wonder. So if you make some kind, if if you make some huge amount of money in a, in like an illicit way, I mean, I wonder what are the ethics for the rabbis maybe of hiding that money if it's somehow ill-gotten. Yeah. So there are discussions of ill-gotten gains um, in federal tax law. Doesn't matter how you make your money, you owe tax on it. So this is how they got Al Capone. Right, they got them on tax evasion. Um, and in fact, we now have a system where, where drug dealers are filing John Doe tax returns. So a lawyer will go in and file a tax return on, on the part of a drug dealer. So if they ever got caught and the government says, hi, you didn't pay your taxes, they say, no, no, we did. Um, so you can't get me on a tax evasion claim. You've got to prove that I was dealing in drugs. Um, and you know, I don't remember as I sit here what the rules are with ill-gotten gains. Um, but by and large, if it's your income, you got to tithe on it. Um, and and there, there are interesting questions. So let's say you embezzle from somebody. You owe tax on that because it's yours. If you have to pay it back, then you can deduct the paying back. It's safe to assume that if someone's achieving their income through ill-gotten gains, then these types of processes 
probably right. 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 They're probably not going to tithe. All right. So we're getting we're, we're getting close. All right. So let me let me let me finish up the last couple of things. Um, so let's turn to deductions. Deductions are really interesting, right? So let's say you earn a thousand dollars, and so, you know a customer gives you a thousand bucks. Well, the amount of income you have is not a thousand dollars, right? The amount of income you have depends on what your expenditures were. So you can imagine that you spend nine hundred dollars to earn a thousand, so you have a uh, hundred dollars of net income, uh, or you might spend twelve thousand dollars or twelve hundred dollars to earn a thousand, in which case you have a two hundred dollar loss. And so one of the questions that the rabbis have to struggle with and the federal tax system struggles with is, you know, which, which expenditures are actually deductible for purposes of figuring out the, the sort of base on which you tithe. My favorite of all time uh, in this regard is business meals. Um, so uh, do you get to deduct business meals? So for federal tax purposes, um, we've had a number of rules. Um, because look, you've got to eat anyway. Eating is a personal expense, and personal expenses shouldn't be deductible. On the other hand, if you're traveling on the road and you're eating as part of business or you're taking somebody out, well, it's a business expense because it's part of doing business. And um, so for federal tax purposes, we've had the, yeah, it's all deductible because you're on business. Um, we've had the rule of, well, wait a minute, at home you would have spent five bucks on lunch, but you're on the road and you spent seven, so you get to deduct the two which is, of course, not administrable, because how do you know I'm going to spend five, right? I'm going to claim that I would have spent nine at home. And, and so, so that was a rule for a short time. And over time, they basically said, look, we're just going to split the baby, and you get to deduct 50% of your meal cost. So I went digging, and I found Rashi and other medieval rabbis arguing over this exact same issue. So some rabbis said, look, it's a personal expense. You're going to eat anyway, no deduction. Other rabbis said, uh, you're, in, you're doing business, it's completely deductible. Some rabbis said, no, 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 it's the excess cost while you're on the road that you get to deduct. And still other rabbis said, and this is my favorite, well, it depends, right? Because if you intended to do business, then um, it's not deductible. But if you didn't intend to do business, right? Business falls in your lap, it's like a miracle. And, and so therefore, it should be deductible. And, and so there were some uh, you know, really heavy debates about 1,000 years ago among the rabbis picking out the exact same positions that we pick out here um, that we've been debating for the last 100 years. And so on the one hand, it's heartening to see that you know, we're all sort of focused on the same thing. It's a little depressing to realize that we haven't figured out the problem in 1,000 years, uh, and we probably never will. Um, so let me turn next to, to tax. Right, so do you have to? Do you get to deduct, you know, your your federal income tax or your sales tax or whatever for purposes of determining how to tithe? Um, interestingly, in federal tax law, we get to deduct state taxes, or at least we did until recently. Um, we got to deduct uh, sales taxes a little bit, um, and the rabbis dealt with the same question. Uh, and the rabbis basically said, um, look. If, if income tax you get to deduct. Why? Because when you earned 100 bucks, 40 of it was already tagged for, for going to the state government. And so you really only ever had $60. And so we're going to let you deduct the... the uh, you know, so, so you can deduct income taxes for purposes of tithing. Sales taxes, they said, are different. Sales taxes, you have the money. You choose to spend it. The sales tax is more like part of the price of something you buy. And so instead of buying it for a dollar, you're buying it for a dollar ten. You don't get to deduct it, you know, something because it's more expensive. Other rabbis have actually said, no, 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 you should, if you're going to do it right, deduct none of it. Um, but, but so you've got this, but, but generally you have a disparate treatment. You say sales taxes, you, you're not allowed to deduct. Income taxes, uh, you are. Um, so the question that, that was raised earlier about can you claim, if your tax money is spent to help the poor, can you claim that as part of your charitable you know, giving? And most rabbis who have looked at it have said no. Right? This, it's not, it, yes, your money was used to do good. Um, and yes, I guess as a voter, you've, you might have voted for the policy that led to that spending. But this is a personal obligation from you. 
And so you can't really claim credit for the good deeds that the government does. Um, this, is the, this is about the good deeds that you do personally. Um, so in the last like three or four minutes that we've got, um, I think the last thing I want to sort of touch on uh, is accounting periods. Um, so we have an annual accounting period for federal tax purposes and for tithing purposes. And in the early days of the income tax, they said, look, every year is separate. So if you earn 150 this year, you got to pay tax on 150. If you lose 50 next year, tough luck. Um, and people said, well, wait a minute. When you look at the two years together, I've only earned 100. So I should be able to take that 50 loss and offset it against my 150 gain and only pay tax on 100. And over time, federal tax law has broken down the barriers between the tax years and said, yeah, because it's not fair. Right? So if, if somebody earns 50 in one year and 50 in another, they're going to pay tax on 100. If somebody else earns 150 in one year and loses 50 the next year, they've also earned 100, but they're going to pay tax on 150. And so for fairness purposes, we have, we have really weakened the barriers between the different tax years. So what about tithing? What if you earn 150 this year and lose 50 next year? Can you, you know, sort of carry back the loss and deduct it? And the rabbis have said, no, you can't do that because there's an annual accounting year. Every year we figure out what you've done. You tithe on what you've done. Uh, and we don't care about fairness as between taxpayer or believer A and believer B. Right? That's just not a motivating principle. Um, you've got to tithe on what you've earned, and the fact that you later lose money doesn't affect what you earned in that year. Um, so, so in conclusion, um, you know, the rabbis and federal tax authorities have, have struggled uh, over the exact same questions. The rabbis have been doing it for about 2,500 years. Uh, we here in the US have been doing it for just slightly over 100. Um, so we struggled with the same questions. In many cases, we've come to the same conclusions. But because of the ways in which the federal tax laws have to work, they have to be administrable, they have to be fair as among taxpayers, we've gone down slightly different paths than the rabbis have done. They are able to look at intent. They are not concerned with fairness between people. And so while the rules are very similar, they do diverge uh, in important ways that reflect the origins and purposes of the two different systems. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.